the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. We're Ray and Alexandra Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Thank you for joining us today. The scripture is directly opposed to most of what we understand in the evangelical church today. Most people believe that when they accept Jesus Christ, their life is suddenly much better. They are blessed, they're cared for, and everything is coming up roses. That's simply not historically true of those who follow Jesus Christ. It is extremely expensive to follow Jesus Christ. In fact, it costs you everything. Now, the reward is beyond imagination. No eye hath seen, no ear hath heard. But right now, it means laying it all down for Jesus. And when I say all, I mean all. We've been sharing with you part of the cost of praying for revival, praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's very clear out of the Matthew 10 passage yesterday, every Christian is expected by Jesus to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Today we live in a time when very few, if any, are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so the church is dead. This has to change. And so it means we need to come in a new way, a new understanding, new to us, but not new to Christians, and lay our life down for Jesus. I want to share with you an illustration of what we're talking about and then Alexandra is going to share with you some of what happened in a great African revival when the Holy Spirit came in power. We're sharing with you from a book, Reese Howells, The Intercessor by Norman Grubb. <coughs> Pardon me. Reese Howells has grown up. He's married. He is now invited into and has become a pastor. He is a full-time ministerial worker. He counts it a great privilege to stand in the pulpit and lift up the cross of Jesus Christ. Now in the midst of all of this busyness, this revival work, this preaching, in the midst of all of this, 
God called again. The Howells had a, a burden of prayer for some missionary friends in West Africa, a Mr. and Mrs. Stober of the Angola Evangelical Mission. Reese and Elizabeth felt that they should help them in some way. And while they were asking the Lord about it, they read in their magazine that a little girl, Edith, had been born to the Stobers. Mr. Howells knew that West Africa was no climate for children, so he told his wife that this would be a good opportunity to help them. They could take the little girl while the parents were in Africa. It was a real test. Mrs. Howells would be tied at home, yet the child would never become theirs. She made the decision. If they give their lives for Africa, she said, I will give mine for the child. They wrote and told the Stobers, but the answer came that they were soon coming home and they could talk it over then. I met my friend at the Landendrod Convention, said Mr. Howells. He did not say anything for the first few days, and it wasn't until I was on my way to the missionary meeting that he told me how thankful he and his wife were for the offer that we had made but they were not wanting to leave Edith just then. I walked straight into the meeting, and there I saw a vision of Africa. Mrs. Albert Head was speaking on behalf of the South African General Mission and pleading for a married couple to take the place of Mr. and Mrs. Edgar Faithful as he was becoming the Home Secretary. I'd heard many people speaking on the need of the mission field, but I never saw I never saw their need until that afternoon. The Lord gave me a vision of them, and they stood before me as sheep without a shepherd. Reese returned home on Saturday and told Elizabeth especially about the married couple. That night they prayed for this couple and could not stop praying for a long time. When they did stop, they couldn't get to sleep. And before the morning hour came, the Lord said, I will answer the prayer through you. I will send you both out there to Africa. It was the greatest surprise of our lives, said Reese. We thought we had a vision of the Africans in order to burden us to pray for someone else to go. But with the Lord, we can only push others as far as we're willing to be pushed ourselves. There were a thousand and one hindrances, but the Lord would take no excuse. Where there's a will, there's a way. The greatest problem was that a little boy had been born. At that time, they'd offered to adopt Edith. They had no child. We told each other that these missionaries ought to give the child up and devote all their time to the work, said Mr. Howells. But we thought little that we were preparing a trap for ourselves. What we thought others should do, we were now called to do. Months before their little boy was born, 
the Lord told them to call him Samuel. There was no Samuel in the family. It was given them just as the name of John was given to Zacharias. There were several similarities in his life to the one he was named after, one being that Mrs. Hal's name was Hannah, and she too was now to put her son on the altar of sacrifice. It was our first test on the call. And the greatest, said Mr. Howells, who tells the story in his own words, quote, The Savior had said, Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And now the Holy Spirit said to us, You must prove to me that you love the souls of the Africans who are to live for eternity more than you love your own son. Does he really mean it? I wondered. Yes, he meant it. Just as he told Abraham to take his only son up the mountain and offer him as a whole burnt offering, many times I'd preached about Abraham giving up Isaac and had emphasized the words, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. How little I had realized what that had really meant to him. I knew that it was to give my life, but to give another's life away was as different as two things could be. God had given us Samuel's name before he was born. I knew he had a purpose for his life. This was our test. God said, if you give him up, you can never claim him again. Not once has it ever dawned on us since then that Samuel was ours. We were to surrender him as really as God surrendered his own son and Abraham his son. Unless you surrender, unless your surrender is real and up to the standard, you will break down long before the end. It wasn't a question of leaving Samuel behind and then that he should call our attention back to himself. No thought of Samuel was to bring us back to this country. The time for my, my wife to take a course of Bible training came. We did not know what place the Lord would open for little Samuel. We left it entirely in the hands of the Lord. We wouldn't have dared to interfere, or we could have made a great mistake. A few weeks before the time for us to leave, I was sent for by my uncle a brother of the one who was healed. His wife was the headmistress in the country school where they lived. He asked if he were to take Samuel with us. I said, no. Well, where is he going? I said, I didn't know. Well, he said, he's to come here with us. They'd never seen him, although they lived within three or four miles. But he said that a few nights before, something came over them about this boy and they wanted to nurse him while we were away. In a couple of days, they were coming to see him. Walking home that day to tell my wife was more than one could bear. Although we had given him up in our hearts, when the Lord actually opened a door for him, it was like pulling one's heart to pieces. But before I reached home, I had enough victory to control myself. It would have been no use for me to show my wife what was going on. 
When I arrived home, she was playing with Samuel. I thought I'd never seen him as he was that night, and for a time I could not break the news. But I took courage, and I told her. The scene that followed can better be imagined than described. We were glad. We only had to go through it once in a lifetime. We proved that night that Africa was going to cost us something. We were coming up to victory by degrees. The process was slow and hard because it was going to be an intercession one had to walk every inch. My uncle and aunt came up and they had never seen a child like him. Without a doubt, the Lord put a father's and mother's love in their hearts toward him. The first thing they did was to invite my sister to be his nurse. It was like Miriam and Moses. The morning came when my sister arrived to fetch him. I think in eternity we shall look back on what we went through then, giving our very best to the Lord. We knew what it was to give money, health, and many other things. But this was the hardest test. The devil was not quiet that morning. He said, I was the hardest man in the world, and to give up a little child. The worst of all was to enter into the feelings of my wife. She was preparing his clothes. He was going out with more than emptying the house. He emptied our hearts as well. When I came home that night, I asked my wife, How did you get through? She said she went into the garden and wept and thought to herself, I've been singing that hymn many a time, but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. And this morning I have to prove it. But then the Lord told me, measure it with Calvary. And with those words, she said, I came right through. Let's stop a minute. We're praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're praying for revival. Can I just tell you, it will cost you everything when you begin to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It will cost you everything when you begin to take seriously the burden of souls praying for revival. It's cost me reputation. People have spoken bitter lies against me and against Alexandra. It's cost us friendships. It cost us being cast out of the All Saints Anglican Church. When you begin to pray for revival and you begin to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you must be prepared because you're going to be called upon to lay everything on the altar of sacrifice before the Lord. Family members will turn against you. Precious friends will desert you. You may even enter into a financial crisis. 
I can't begin to describe what we have walked into and what we're walking through. For the last three weeks, I've had searing pain in my back. I've never had any back problem in my life. But suddenly, this searing, horrid, disabling pain has racked my back. And I've said, Lord, I stand by faith for full healing. I know you will heal me, and I know he will. He is healing me. But the devil is not going to let you just casually waltz into the prayer closet and begin to pray for revival and begin to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come against you like a lion, ferocious. This walk with Jesus is not for the timid. It's not for the faint. It's not for those who compromise with wickedness. Now the Lord has said four things to me. I'm going to tell you exactly as we began this intense intercession. I'll tell you what he said. He said, wait upon the Lord. And then with almost no break, he said, and the Lord will carry you through. And the Lord will carry you through. And then he said very kindly, Rest in me, Ray. Rest in me, Ray. That's the first time that I can recall Jesus ever speaking to me using my name. Rest in me, Ray. And then this last Sunday morning, after a long period of prayer, crying out to the Lord, He said, do not accommodate sin. Well, what does accommodate mean? It means to make comfortable. It means to offer hospitality to sin. So a person is walking in sin and you make them comfortable in their sin, in your presence. I cannot do that. Whatever the cost, I must speak with kindness and love, but with absolute firmness. You see, you cannot be baptized in the Holy Spirit with sin in your life or with you accommodating sin. It means to be made clean. Now, the reward for Reese Howells and Elizabeth, his wife, I read, In praying together afterwards, the Lord showed me the reward. He said to us, for everything you gave up for me, there is a hundredfold. And on this you can claim 10,000 souls in Africa. And we believed it. After Mr. and Mrs. Howells left, left for Africa, Samuel became so completely a son to Mr. and Mrs. Reese that his name was changed to Samuel Reese. He grew up with them and later went to Oxford University where he graduated. He was with him literally as with Samuel of old. He seemed to set him apart for the Lord and 
served him from his youth up. He accepted Christ as his personal Savior at the age of twelve. His adopted parents wanted him to become a doctor. But Samuel felt the Lord's call to ministry. After his university course, he came back to join his own father with his foster parents' loving consent. Although Mr. and Mrs. Howells never raised one finger to draw him in their direction, it was God who sent him back to them. Samuel became assistant director of the Bible College, of which, after his father's home call, he became director, and once again known to everybody by the name of Samuel Reese Howells. How perfectly the Lord fulfilled the promises given to his father and mother, even before his birth. How abundantly the Lord honored the sacrifice made by his parents to give him up. The love and, and care showed, showered on him by his foster parents. The South Africa General Mission had been founded in 1889 to take the gospel into the many unevangelized areas of South Africa the first president of the mission being Reverend Andrew Murray. When Mr. and Mrs. Howells joined it, the mission had 170 European and African workers in 25 stations, reaching as far north as the southern frontier of the Belgian Congo and east and west into untouched parts of the Portuguese territories of Angola and Mozambique. The Howells were sent to the Ruzudu mission station in Gazaland, near the border of Portuguese East Africa. They joined Mr. and Mrs. Hatch, who had labored there for several years, and who, with others who had preceded them, had laid a firm foundation and paid a real price in taking the gospel to these people. Mr. and Mrs. Hatch had recently been studying the subject of the Lord's second coming, and giving time to the word of God in prayer, longed for a deeper blessing in their own souls in order that fuller blessing might come to their people. When the Howells arrived, there was already preparation of heart for a work of the Holy Spirit. The natural thing for new recruits to the mission field is to spend a considerable period in language study, acclimatization, and the general getting used to life in a new country. But the people had already heard that Mr. and Mrs. Howells came from the land where the revival had been, and straightway asked them if they had brought that blessing with them. Mr. Howells told them that the source of all revival is the Holy Ghost, and that he could do among them what he had done in Wales. They asked him to preach about it, of course by interpretation. Since they had no word in their language for revival, he told them about Pentecost, that it was God who had come down who had come down then, moving upon the hearts of men and women, and had swept multitudes into the kingdom, and that he would do the same thing with them if they were willing to repent. In the meetings that Mr. Howells took, he continued to speak to them about revival, and in six weeks the Spirit began to move upon the Christians. On Friday evening, when about a dozen of them had gathered in the Howells' house, Mrs. Howells taught them the chorus, Lord, send a revival, and let it begin in me. The Spirit was upon them as they sang, and they continued the singing the next days in their gardens and elsewhere. As Mr. Howells listened to them, he recognized a sound he had heard in the Welsh revival. 
You know it when you hear it, he said, but you can't make it. And by the following Thursday, I was singing it too. There was something about it which changed you and brought you into the stillness of God. That evening, as their custom was each Thursday, the four missionaries met together for Bible reading and prayer. While they were on their knees, the Lord spoke to Mr. Howells, telling him that their prayer was heard and the revival was coming. He called them all to rise. There was no need of further prayer. The Holy Ghost was coming down to give a Pentecost in their district. So great was the power of God's word that every moment after, they expected the break. At every knock on the door, they felt sure it was someone coming to tell them that the Holy Ghost had come. They thus waited for two days, and on Sunday, he came. We have Mr. Howell's own account of the days that followed. The Sunday was October 10th, my birthday, and as I preached in the morning, you could feel the Spirit coming on the congregation. In the evening, down he came. I shall never forget it. He came upon a young girl, Kufasi by name, who had fasted for three days under conviction that she was not ready for the Lord's coming. As she prayed, she broke down crying, and within five minutes the whole congregation were on their faces crying to God. Like lightning and thunder, the power came down. I had never seen this, even in the Welsh revival. I had only heard about it with Finney and others. Heaven had opened, and there was no room to contain the blessing. I lost myself in the spirit and prayed as much as they did. All I could say was, He has come. We went on until late in the night. We couldn't stop the meeting. What he told me before I went to Africa was actually taking place, and that within six weeks. You can never describe those meetings when the Holy Spirit comes down. I shall never forget the sound in the district that night, praying everywhere. The next day he came again, and people were on their knees until 6 p.m. This went on for six days, and people began to confess their sins and come free as the Holy Spirit brought them through. They had forgiveness of sins and met the Savior as only the Holy Spirit can reveal him. Everyone who came near would go under the power of the Spirit. People stood up to give their testimonies, and it was nothing to see twenty-five on their feet at the same time. At the end of one week, nearly all were through. We had two revival meetings every day for fifteen months without a single break, and meetings all day on Fridays. Hundreds were converted, but we were looking for more, for the ten thousand upon whom God had told us we had a claim. As the news reached England of this breaking forth of the Spirit and its spread to neighboring stations, Mrs. Bessie Porterhead, the wife of Mr. Albert Head, published two booklets. They were called Advance in Gazaland and Retrospect and Revival in Gazaland. Mrs. Head started by giving some account of the founding of the Rizudu Station in 1897. Several early pioneers had laid down their lives in founding the work, including Mr. Hatch's first wife. They had been sewing for years, and as Mrs. Head said, after Mr. and Mrs. Howells arrived and the blessing had begun, the two former, Mr. and Mrs. Hatch, have labored for many years there, truly sowing in tears the seed of life with patience and prayer. The two latter, Mr. and Mrs. Howells, 
are now helping them to reap with joy a great harvest, which is being gathered in by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. After describing the mighty movement of the Spirit on that first Sunday, she continues, Meetings lasted from early morning until sunset, with only a short break, the people weeping and confessing their sins, so that the missionaries could not put in a word, but simply wept with them and prayed for them. Sometimes everyone would be kneeling and confessing together, in great agony of soul, and then one and another would get free and begin to sing for joy. This went on day by day, from Sunday till Thursday, the Spirit doing a mighty convicting work in souls and leading to confessions such as no human agency could have extorted from them. Hearing of God's working in such a remarkable manner at Rizudu, an invitation was sent from the American Board Mission Station, some 40 miles to the south, to Mr. Hatch and Mr. Howells to visit Mount Selinda. This is a large station with a staff of doctors, ministers, schoolmistresses, and so forth. At the first meeting, at 9 a.m. on Thursday, the building was crowded, and the missionaries told how the blessing had come to Rizudu, and what the conditions were to receive the blessing. After two or three of the Rizudu Christians had given their testimonies, crowds began to cry for mercy and to confess their sins, the numbers being so great that it was impossible to help them all, although the leading meeting lasted until one o'clock in the day. They all met again at two, and there was a wonderful time. The men who had held back somewhat in the morning came forward in confession of sin, completely broken down. Teachers, evangelists, and scholars all praying and confessing, and this went on without any confusion under the Spirit's control until sunset. As was said previously, None but the Holy Spirit could have made the people confess the sins which burdened them. For instance, a tall man stood up and related in a broken voice the following story. In one of the native wars, the young men were boasting of how they killed women, etc. So this man went and killed in cold blood a young girl. After he became a Christian, she seemed to be constantly before him, as if asking why he had killed her. As an ordinary Christian, he had thought this was too great a sin to confess, and only Holy Ghost power led to the confession. He wept and wept, and said he was the chief of sinners, and was in agony of soul for hours. But what a scene, when he got free. He could only say, Thank you, Lord Jesus. He began to give his testimony, and said that for years he had not known what peace was, and then he would break out afresh, saying, Thank you, Lord Jesus. That day, about a hundred souls came to complete deliverance and victory, and on Saturday, scores came through into the new life of peace and surrender, and instead of soul agony, the majority were praising and singing with joy. On Sunday, over two hundred had come into liberty, and there was no need for the missionaries to speak, as four or five were standing at a time, each to take their turn to give testimony. Perhaps the most blessed outlook for the district is that God mightily met and filled with the Holy Spirit twenty young men and women who some weeks before the revival had offered themselves to the Lord for evangelistic work in Portuguese at East Africa. As this brief account of God's working goes to the press, 
further tidings have come to hand of the continued outpouring of God's Spirit in the Gazaland district. During the short visit of Mr. Hatch and Mr. Howells to Melsetter, the power of the Spirit was so mighty in the meetings that white and black people alike were deeply convicted and lives were wholly surrendered to God. The farmsteads on the road to Melsetter were visited, and six Dutch and English were converted, and four who were already Christians surrendered fully to God. Are not these facts encouragements to us all to continue instant in prayer, and will not God continue to show us his greater things, not only in Gazaland, but right throughout South Africa? The little flames that are already alight in different centers may, by our prayers, be fanned into a mighty blaze. Mrs. Howells now continues the story. At the end of fifteen months, a request came to all the mission stations from the head office of the SAGM in Cape Town, asking the missionaries and Africans to give half an hour every morning from 7 to 7.30 to pray specially that every station might receive the same blessing as we had experienced at Rizudu. Mr. Howells used to go to a little summer house for this special half hour of prayer. One Monday morning, about a month after starting to pray, I saw Mr. Howells coming in after he had only been out a quarter of an hour, and I could see by his face that something marvelous had happened to him. He said, I was pleading on his word, Malachi 3.10, and I saw the Holy Ghost descending. He appeared to me. I saw him coming down on all the mission stations, and the glory of God was so much on Mr. Howells that he was not in himself. He said he couldn't stay on the station, but must go up to the mountain. He couldn't be still, but for a whole day walked miles upon the mountain shouting praises to God. I followed him until I was too tired for words. He was in that glory the entire week. It was so great as to be almost unbearable. Mr. Howells did not think that he would be the one to go around the stations, until a month later they had an invitation to a conference at Durban, at which all the missionaries who could leave their stations were to be present, and they asked Mr. and Mrs. Howells to bring sufficient clothes for six months as they wanted them to go around the stations. Mr. Howells so shrank from the responsibility of being the one God could use that he said he couldn't come. "'I've only been on the field two years,' was his excuse. But the answer came back from Mr. Middlemiss, the superintendent in Cape Town, you are a man under authority, and you must come. Before they left to go down to Durban, Mr. Middlemiss wrote and said, I know you don't have a bank account. He knew that they had been led to give 50% of their salary away so as, to con so as to continue to maintain a personal life of faith. So will you wire if you don't have money for your fare? But Mr. Howell said, no, I'll never wire. We're going to trust the Lord. He regarded it as a good means of proving that the call was really from the Lord. It came to the last post before they were to leave at 6 a.m. the next day, and that post was a letter from a friend in America who had never given them money before, sending in dollars the equivalent of 25 pounds. So they started their journey in full assurance of faith. There were 43 missionaries present at the conference. Mr. Howells hadn't expected to take part more than anyone else, but the blessing was so great in the opening meetings that he was asked to speak every day. For about three weeks, it was like a revival. 
Some nights the meetings went on into the early hours of the morning, and all the missionaries received a blessing. They were so full of joy that they were even singing on the streetcars. By the end of the conference, the missionaries gave Mr. Howells a unanimous invitation to visit all the stations, thus confirming the intimation he had already received from the council at Cape Town. All then went back to their stations to pray and prepare for the visit, in expectation that the Holy Ghost would fall on each station, as he had done at Rizudu. Mr. Howells continues the story. How could I believe that there would be scores saved on these stations, where in some cases the ground was still very stony? The enemy challenged me on this and asked me how I could carry revival from one land to another with different languages and hundreds of miles between them. I didn't overcome this test in a day. There was many a hard battle, for the issues were tremendous. But I remember when I did come through, I said that there was no need to take people with the blessing from station to station, because the Holy Ghost was going in us, and he is the author of Pentecost and the source of revival. Amen. Our journey took us over 11,000 miles, visiting five countries, Swaziland, Pondoland, Bamvanaland, Tembuland, and Zululand. We were two years away from our own station. On the first station, it was hard going the first day. The missionary told us of much backsliding in the church. Even some of the deacons had been causing trouble. But on the third day, the spirit came down and swept the place. Two of the deacons were always sitting at the back. When the people began to confess their sins and come through to great blessing, they came up to me and said, We enjoy the meetings very well, but we don't like this confessing of sin. When it begins, we feel a great pain in the back of our heads. Quite so, I answered, but one day it will move down a little lower to your hearts. Do you think we need to confess? They then inquired. If you have sinned against God, I replied, it is between you and God. But if you have sinned against the church, you must confess before the church. One of these deacons was named Jephthah. He went to pray and continued in prayer for about three days. Then about one o'clock in the morning, his wife came and got us up. Do come. Jephthah is mad with joy. Shall we ring the bell and call the people together for a meeting? <laughs> you can't ring the bell at this hour of the night, I protested. But his mother went round to all the people, calling them together, and by 3 a.m. the church was packed. Jephthah was blinded, just like the Apostle Paul. They had to lead him to the church, where he confessed the sins he had been committing. After that, scores were converted. His sight returned in a few days, and we took him around with us for about three months. Whenever he gave his testimony, it was like shots from a gun all the time, as one after another would go down under the Spirit's conviction, and he never failed to get many through. In the next place, there was a school of 99 girls. They had heard that the people were confessing their sins, so they met together and agreed among themselves that they were not going to confess theirs. The first two meetings were very hard in consequence, but at midnight on the second day a crime went up and they could hold out no longer. They began to confess until 98 were converted. The other one ran away. Many began to pray for their families who had never been to a meeting. The next place we visited was Bethany, where the Queen of Swaziland lived. The first day, we were thirteen hours in the chapel, dealing all the time with souls. 
On the third day, oh, the power that was there. It wasn't the preaching, it was the power. One African prayed, Lord, give us a hundred converts in the next three days. Those were the believings of the Holy Ghost. The Queen of Swaziland sent for me. She asked why her people were going after my God. I told her it was because they had met the living God and had forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. I told her that God had one son and he gave him to die for us. And we had one son and had left him to tell the people of Africa about God. She was very much affected by hearing that my wife and I loved her people more than we loved our own son. She allowed me to have a private meeting with her chief men, but said I must not look at her, but speak as if I were only talking to them. Later in the chapel, the power of God was on the meeting, and when I tested it, fifty stood up, including the young queen, the daughter-in-law of the reigning queen. The man who had prayed for a hundred souls leaped to his feet, exclaiming, Praise God for answering prayer. Fifty souls, and the queen, another fifty. We have our hundred. But before the three days were ended, a hundred and five had accepted Christ. When we came back some time later, the old queen asked to see us privately. She told us that she had just lost her daughter, who had also become a Christian, and she had died in perfect peace, trusting in Jesus. She seemed very much affected, and added that she too in her heart had accepted the Savior. In Pondo Land, on one station, I was preaching on the crucifixion on Good Friday, and the Spirit brought out those words, Away with him! Crucify him! It seemed as though the people saw hell open before them, and in one mass the whole congregation rushed forward to get right with God. I was afraid they would push the pulpit over. At another place in Zululand where I was preaching, an evangelist was convicted of lack of power to win souls. He went out to the bush and cried all night to God. The next day, he accepted the Holy Spirit. He came through most gloriously, and the outcome of that anointing was such that before very long, his outstation had become greater than the main station. In ways like these, the Holy Ghost came down on every station and gave revival, exactly as he had said he would do, and fulfilled the promise of 10,000 souls. In Johannesburg, for instance, Mr. Howells conducted great revival meetings for 21 days in one of the largest churches, and it was packed every night. He had to speak through three interpreters. There were so many different tribes, but that did not hinder the spirit breaking through and hundreds coming out every night for salvation. No one was more conscious than his servant that the Holy Ghost was the doer of it, and that it was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. He laid hands on hundreds under the Spirit's power and guidance, and they came free every time. Outside the meetings, he would look at his hands, see how ordinary they were, and wonder where the power came from. But he knew. We've shared with you a story out of Reese Howells, The Intercessor, by Norman Grubb. Again, illustrating the cost of following Jesus, the cost of revival. God is not going to just drop a revival down upon us. 
He's not going to just suddenly baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It's going to cost you everything. It's costing Alexandra and myself everything. We've laid it all on the altar. Our reputation, our ministry. We've laid the National Prayer Chapel on the altar. We've laid this radio broadcast on the altar. We are being sustained and carried financially by the Holy Spirit. We are being sustained in our physical life by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? When you decide to follow Jesus, it's not enough to just say, I'll accept him. No, it means going the next step and putting everything you are and everything you have on the altar of burnt offering. Are you willing to do that? We don't have but a few minutes left in the broadcast today. Anything you'd like to share, Alexandra, before we close? I just would encourage you to see that Mr. and Mrs. Howells had to give up their son, but in return, you saw that for years they were mightily used by God to save 10,000 people in Africa. And then their son Samuel went on to become the director of the Bible College, and he was used by God in many of the same ways that his father was used as an intercessor, as a prayer warrior for the kingdom. So it seems like a cost, but if your heart is set on God, what you get in return, which is truly for the kingdom, far outweighs whatever that initial cost is. As we spoke with a man this last week about the cost of following Jesus, he said, well, does that mean that I might never get married? Yes, that is what it means. Does that mean I'm not going to ever have my own life? Yeah, that's what it means. It means you put your whole life on the line with Jesus and you let him bring to pass what he desires in your heart and in your life. And this man turned in scorn and anger and said, I'm in control of my own life. I don't need Jesus to do anything like this in my life. Yes, yeah, so that's the case. Uh, this particular person has not been converted. But I want to warn you because I, I did meet a very wonderful couple who are now in their late 50s who are Christians. The wife early in her life saw revival at her campus church and they were called to be missionaries in South Africa very clearly by the Lord several times and they were unwilling to do it. So they never went. And I have to tell you, these two were just the most broken, humble Christians I have ever had the privilege of praying with. God's forgiveness was there, but their children weren't converted. They had missed out on decades of winning souls for the kingdom. And you can't get that back. So please don't make that same mistake. Lay your life down for Jesus. Lay your life down for Jesus. So we have two minutes left. 
we would like to hear from you. Is God moving in your heart? You're welcome to write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. If the Lord prompts you to support this ministry, if the Lord prompts you to support the radio broadcast, we'd like to hear from you. Again, it's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. There you will find all of our past messages, videos. You can contact us through the website. We're eager to hear questions. If there's a question you'd like us to answer on the air, you can send that to us. Testimonies. And you can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at National Prayer Chapel. Thank you, and join us again tomorrow at the same time, 1 to 2 p.m. And we'll be talking about revival. Yes. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We love you. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.